the Water Values Podcast, Session 89. Well, we have got a great interview for you today. It runs a little bit long. It's a shade over 40 minutes, and I try to keep all the, the total length of the podcast under 45 minutes. So because of that, I'm dispensing with the normal production at the top of the show. Uh, a couple quick announcements before we get into this, and it's a great, great guest, by the way. But the first and most important announcement is that we're moving in a couple of days, and that means reassembling, um, disassembling and reassembling all the uh, equipment needed to put the podcast on. And then also, um, we're getting gigabyte internet installed, and so it's going to be about a month or so before that even gets installed and is, is working at the house. Um, and so we're not going to have broadband uh, during that, that period, obviously, and so we won't be able to upload any shows. Uh, so long way of saying the Water Values podcast is going to take a short hiatus, probably about a month, month and a half before we get things up and running again. So just letting you know, no podcast for the next month and a half. Um, second, thank you so much to those of you who've taken the few seconds of your day to go online to thewatervalues.com. Click the little yellow button and donate uh, to the Water Values Podcast. Really appreciate that. Uh, it really helps, even even those small amounts, help defray the cost of putting the Water Values Podcast on and producing it. So thank you to those of you who've done that. If you haven't done it yet and you're enjoying the podcast, please consider making a small donation to the Water Values Podcast. Now on to our guest today, who is fantastic. We have Bo Abrams, a professor at the Florida A&M University College of Law. He's fantastic, and he's going to walk us through something we haven't addressed enough, I think, in this podcast, and that is kind of Eastern water law. And Professor Abrams does a great job of talking about, of, of really bringing us through the history of the English common law water law to riparian water law and how riparian water law has evolved over time and come closer and closer to the prior appropriation uh, scheme of water law. And he's also going to talk about how uh, and why Western water law, that prior appropriation water law, is also starting to loosen some of its grips in certain instances and move a little closer to riparian water law. So it's, he's going to talk about convergence of Eastern and Western water law. And it's, I think it's absolutely fascinating. You're going to learn all kinds of new vocabulary, like littoral rights and things like that. So um, just sit back and enjoy Bo Abrams. He is fantastic. And with that said, open the valves, fasten your seatbelts, and here we go. Bo, thanks so much for coming on to the Water Values Podcast. Really appreciate your time. Uh, just for starters, could you please tell us a little about your background and how you got interested in water? Yes, um, I, I'm a professor of law currently at Florida A&M University. Uh, the law school's in Orlando, even though the main campus is up in Tallahassee. Um, I've been teaching law since 1974, and I've been teaching water law pretty much continuously since, since about the same time. Um, I got interested in water law because the two best professors I had um, in law school were specialists in water law, one at Stanford, uh, uh, Charles J. Myers, who was um, counsel to the National Water Commission. In fact, when he left Stanford, that's when I transferred to Michigan so that I could study with Joe Sachs. And Joe was 
the other leading expert, and they had quite different views about water law. Um, Charlie was a, a market rights kind of person, and Joe was a public rights kind of person. And so I've seen it from both sides, and then I got most involved with it when um, I was teaching at Wayne State, which is, is near the University of Michigan, and visiting at the University of Michigan, I, I persuaded uh, Joe Sachs to redo his old water law book into a new one, uh, which is still now um, in production with uh, uh, my new co-authors are um, Buzz Thompson, who's at Stanford, and John Leshy, who's at Hastings. And um, Joe had been on the book until the last edition, and, and then... Um, um, when he could no longer do the book, he, he dropped off. Um, so that's that's where my water law background comes from. And then when I started writing, I started writing about water law, and, and I've been doing it ever since. Well, terrific. You know what? We've had um, we've had some guests on uh, previously that have primarily dealt with prior appropriation, and that is that's what the Charles J. Meyer version is, right? The market rights version is that from what yeah. you from what you well, discussed well it, it's prior appropriation is is simply there's there's three possible property systems there's there's one based on capture where like and this, these are usually used for groundwater but I'll, I'll i'll use the three versions um capture is if is when it comes out your pump it's yours and and there's no liability whatsoever to anyone um so a rule of capture you then the prop that's your property right um that's um, one of the groundwater doctrines. Another is priority. Whoever starts using it first um, gets to maintain that use, and then others compete for the remainder, again, based on priority. And that's the prior appropriation system that you're talking about. And then the third one is sharing, where you view you view the resource as a common pool resource, and everyone that, that you to whom rights are assigned has a, 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 a a correlative right with the others to share the resource. And so riparianism is based on correlative rights. Prior appropriation is based on priority in, in terms of when you first put it to use. Um, they become very different in a situation where there's a shortage. Obviously, when there's enough to go around and everybody gets all the water they want, you don't need any property rules uh, because there's no conflict. But in a conflict situation, when you've got a correlative right, then what you're looking for is an adjustment so that everyone's use of the water can be continued. And if you can't find that adjustment, then uh, everyone is expected to bear some portion of the, of the dislocation that comes from shortage. Whereas in prior appropriation, um, what happens is the most senior person gets their entire water right first, then the next most senior gets their water right, and so on down the line until juniors are, when you get to the first junior who only gets some, every junior uh, behind them in the priority list gets nothing. Right. So, and so they're quite different systems. Exactly. And so we've had, I've had a number of guests that have talked about prior appropriation. We haven't, I haven't really delved into the, the, you know, the riparianism or what a lot of people think of it as Eastern water law. Uh, so let's talk a little about the foundations of riparianism and kind of where it came from uh, and, and, you know, why, why that doctrine predominates in the Eastern U.S. So could, could you, could you kind of give yeah, us a, it's, a, it's, Sure. It's a combination of uh, climate and history. Um, the historical part is, of course, the, the 
eastern states were settled by uh, as English colonies initially, and then the west westward movement took place after that. The climate in the eastern states is humid. Uh, almost every state gets at least 40 inches a year of, of rainfall. Uh, most of it comes at times when you need it, and so you could you could dry land farm without uh, just based on precipitation, and you didn't need irrigation. Um, whereas in the west, you cross the 100th meridian, and um, the prairie states used to be called the Great American Desert. And so they needed uh, water rights that they felt were more reliable since everybody was irrigating. The other thing that was different is um, riparian rights. Um, to be a riparian, you own water, you own land uh, that abuts the water, the water resource. Uh, if you're on a lake, they use a slightly different terminology. That's those are littoral owners, and they have littoral rights, but for all intents and purposes, they're the same as riparian rights. Again, it's a, a sharing concept. And again, in the East where it's well watered, um, where you can live off the rainfall, there's a lot of streams, they're close together. Um, what happened is they assigned the rights to use the water um, based on the ownership of the land that was abutting that because, uh, it, again, thinking historically, um, they didn't have many means of transporting the water away from the streams anyway, and they were most valuable to be used in situ, meaning in, in place um, for things like turning power wheels and, and that sort of thing. The Eastern water law developed largely um, to provide power uh, in, in for the mills that were beginning to grow up in, in the colonies and then in the states. Um, and so allowing a system that shared the water and allowed each lower owner to have the benefit of the water as it came down to him uh, was valuable. The English had a system called natural flow riparianism where you couldn't make any alteration in the flow. Um, in the U.S., they found that on smaller streams, you had to back up the river for a while to create a big enough mill pond to get enough stored energy to, to drive the wheel. So um, what happened is the, this was the first major change in water law in, in the U.S. was to go from the English natural flow, where the water just had to be allowed to come down, um, to reasonable use riparianism, where the, the idea was your use had to be reasonable vis-a-vis -vis the uses of other other riparians on the stream. So I couldn't back it up for months at a time and then let it down in a torrent because that wouldn't allow the lower owners the, the benefit. Um, so reasonable use riparian came in, and again, it was this, the idea was sharing the benefit, and again, the primary benefit was was power. You you read the 19th century cases about water law, and at least uh, at least 85 to 90 percent of them are about mills and and competing mill mill seats uh, fighting over the water. Um, so in the east, um, because there is when you think about it, there's enough water. For the, you're not irrigating. Um, your large water users become the cities. And so you need to figure out how are we going to provide secure water rights for cities because obviously they can't exist without without uh, having um, adequate potable water, and not everybody can be on wells at that point. 
So this, the question for the cities became, can we work that into the riparian right? And what they did instead was they gave them the power of condemnation uh, and allowed them to condemn the rights of riparians, riparians and divert water to the cities. So in the early 20th century, you'll see there's cases involving Boston's water supply, New York's water supply, Philadelphia's water supply, and these were all major rivers, but the, in, in essence, um, what the cities were doing was protecting uh, their rights to, to the water. And New York, I believe to this day, is still has ongoing litigation about water rights that were condemned almost a century ago to provide for, for the water for, well, for New York. That's amazing. That's, you know, I, I, one real quick observation. Uh, you mentioned the, essentially the economic driver that pushed water law from the English natural flow repairianism to uh, kind of the reasonable use repairianism. Reasonable use, yes, that's yeah. correct. And so it's uh, that's that's very interesting because I've had uh, you know Justice Hobbs on before was the one who really hit on it uh, what, that prior appropriation was really an economic doctrine as well. So all these forms of water law, it's it's the the law is conforming to the economic drivers to allow a capitalist society to move forward. I mean, is that kind of what? Well, yeah. I, I am a big believer in that theory. I, I, I call it instrumentalist. Water, water law is an instrument of, of social policy. It doesn't necessarily have to be economic, but that's usually the driver uh, is, is economic sharing. In fact, there's, there's very interesting historical work that's been done that water law is the, was the organizing principle of, of what were called hydraulic societies in, in um, the Far East. Um, where in an era before, of course, steam shovels and all of those things, um, when you needed you needed the water to irrigate the crops to support the, the population, um, the masses were organized along teams to, to, in effect, build the waterworks that would provide for the rice crops and things like that. Uh, and and so the whole social organization, it was called Ori. The, the book that posited this theory was by a gentleman named Carl Wittfogel, um, and the, the name of the book was Oriental Despotism. Hmm. And uh, essentially it was... Uh, it was the whole organizing principle of society was what was necessary to control the water to provide the the the, the uh, infrastructure for for growing crops and supporting the population. Um, the other interesting thing is I, I, I you can see hints of that in other social organizations um, in the Netherlands, for example. The very first, as you know, of course, their, their problem is not not having a lack of water, but having too much water um, <laughs> because they're they're so low. But the the very first um, governmental organization was was the Rijkswasserstaat, which is the state water bureau, and uh, they they were in charge of making sure that they weren't being flooded out all the time. But again, uh, if you think about being in the the 17th, 16th, and 17th centuries, given the technologies, it needed the communal organization that that was the first. The, the, the first element was controlling water in order to to survive. Um, so there's a there's a history of this that that water law is is a driver for social organization, um, and it becomes very true when water becomes scarce. Uh, obviously, because of its its fundamentality to providing other food sources and and for for 
staying alive altogether. Um, so. Right. And so that's, that's kind of where I want, I want to go next is the, the scarcity question and, and what happens to, uh, reasonable use preparingism when we start adding stressors like scarcity, like, you know, we've seen climate change yep. and, and Atlanta almost run us. So what, how, how can you enlighten us on how, uh, reasonable use preparingism, uh, is changing amid some of the stressors and can you, I, I identify climate, but what are the, what are some of the other stressors you're seeing out there? Um, for the for the east, uh, besides climate, the the one is municipal growth. Um, Atlanta's the case in point for that. Um, they they sit at the very top of the watershed. Um, they're 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 kind of uh, the Akmulgee goes out to the Atlantic, and the Chattahoochee then flows south uh, into the Gulf of Mexico. And they're not they're not far removed from the Tennessee River uh, system. Um, so they're at the, at the top of the watershed and therefore they have limited river resources and for whatever reason, the, um, the hydrogeology of the ground, they, they have no real groundwater supply. So you keep putting people there and there's no obvious water supply. So they have to begin to look to, to, uh, either water importation, um, choices, which they've done, but also, um, to hoarding what, what falls at the top of the watershed, which is the the point of conflict. Um, the second the second point of conflict is drought, um, because drought brings what they've learned in the east is is that if you irrigate selectively, um, you can increase crop yields by twenty to thirty percent. Um, and therefore, there's a lot of people in the selective irrigation business. And of course, the time they they choose to select to irrigate is the time when it's driest. Um, and so drought becomes a huge trigger uh, for creating demands, off-stream demands for the water that didn't used to be there, which then in turn um, create in-stream consequences. And then the third the third driver uh, in the east, and this is uh, in coastal areas, is groundwater pumping. Um, groundwater pumping doesn't really begin in earnest until the latter half of, of the 20th century because the pumps, the centripetal pumps weren't available and the energy to drive them uh, wasn't readily available until then. But what's happened is many coastal communities pump groundwater uh, because they're far enough downstream that the ebb and flow of the tide means that the surface streams are saline or can't be, can't be, there'll be enough salt content in them that they can't be used for drinking water. And so they'll pump groundwater. And when you pump too much groundwater, um, it's a little hard to imagine in words, but imagine that that underneath the ground, the aquifer keeps going out underneath the ocean. So at some point in the aquifer, there's salt water up against the fresh water. And if you create too much pumping, it begins to break down the barrier between the two, uh, and it pulls salt water into the aquifer, and that can contaminate the entire aquifer. So in coastal regions, that's the third stressor um, in the in the east. Perfect. Overuse, overuse of the aquifers. Perfect. Now, wh wh how are these stressors impacting repairing, you know, reasonable use repairingism? What's, what, what are, well, what's, that, yeah. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good question. Um, the, I mean, think about this pragmatically for a minute. If you have a, if you don't have a lot of conflict, you don't need much water law. 
And historically, that's exactly the way riparianism worked. It's a very kludgy system because when you think about it, if you've got correlative rights, of essentially of all of the users on the stream, um, and then you get a dispute between a couple of close together users, only after, after the conflict has materialized, do you do anything about it? And then what you do is, is when you realize there's no real bar barrier to other people making use of, of the water, and so other users might create new conflicts. So there's this potential here for, I resolve a dispute, but it doesn't do any good because then some new entrant comes along and they, they create the dispute. If you got a system that works that poorly and it takes a lot of resources to, to do this, and then you get a result that could be upset by the entry, new entry of someone else using the water, that's a terrible system um, if there's conflict. If there's not enough conflict, then any system you have that if there's really very few conflicts, then the system's great because you, you involve you invest almost no resources in maintaining it. Um, it's just there. People know who has water rights. It's very easy. If you're a riparian, you have the rights, and if you're not, you don't. Um, so it, it's an elegant system if there's not much conflict. As conflict begins to increase, it becomes uh, an increasingly questionable concept. And so starting in the 1950s when the cities were growing and pumps were beginning to have an effect on water tables and aquifers, um, you began to see people, academics in particular, uh, becoming interested in, in changing the water law even though the conflicts hadn't increased in number very much. So it was trying to, like, for a change, trying to get out ahead of the problem. Um, there are still comparatively few conflicts, um, which is why it's a little surprising that there's as much movement in the states um, to, to go away from reasonable use riparianism, which when you think about it is reactive. It tells us in advance that everybody has correlative rights, but it only defines those rights in the face of conflict and after the conflict has matured and become a problem. Um, prior appropriation, when you, when you think about it, is proactive. That is, as soon as, you get, as soon as you create your use, you know where you are in the priority system, you know what your rights are vis-a-vis -vis everybody else on the stream, and so that you could predict in advance what's gonna happen in a shortage situation. With riparianism, it's, it's kind of an open question, well, what would a court do and it's very hard to predict because there's so few decisions, but even if there were more decisions, each situation has a, a chance to change over time as, as other people uh, begin to make use of the water. So um, I think the Eastern states um, began to see, we're gonna need to do a little bit of water management. And the, they thought, let's get out ahead of the problem before it bogs down in all of these judicial cases. And states slowly but surely began to designate critical areas where the, there appeared like they were gonna be, and these were mostly groundwater areas, critical groundwater management areas. And then the academic commentary was still pushing towards comprehensive schemes. And there were two different, um, two different plans that were worked out, one in the late 1950s um, that created a model water code uh, that was adopted by the state of Iowa, and then one in the early 1970s that created another model water code that was adopted uh, in Florida. 
And then most recently in the 1990s, the American Society of Civil Engineers um, promulgated yet a third water code. This one was called the Regulated Riparianism Model Water Code. Um, and so we've got, had three separate um, academically created uh, water codes for the East. And over time, states have selected some or parts, some parts of them, or in a couple of states, all of them, um, to to try out as their water law. And it's it's worked for the states that have adopted it. For the most part, it's worked reasonably well. So, uh, so this regulated riparianism and these models that Florida and Iowa have adopted, kind of what what are the characteristics that are contained in those in those codes that that cause them to move away from reasonable use riparianism? Right. Well, they go from reactive to proactive. Um, and so every, every water use that you want to initiate um, has to be subject to a permit. So that you've now got government saying you can have a permit, uh, you can have a permit to, to each of the would-be water users, but the code will set, set limits on what the, what the terms of the permit will be, and the code can also set a maximum on, uh, you, can, you can say, um, we're gonna protect minimum stream flows, so we're not gonna issue permits in, a, in an amount that would reduce the, the stream flow below the, the set minimum. So for example, Florida has minimum levels and flows, uh, meaning water levels for lakes and water tables and, and um, flows in streams. And supposedly the permit granting agencies will not grant permits that would violate the minimum levels or flows. So you can begin to build in uh, environmental protection of the resource as a whole as part of the permit system. Uh, and again, you're, you're doing this proactively based on planning. Um, and it, it has this advantage of integrating planning to action in, in a way that, that isn't possible with a reactive system like, like common law riparianism. Um, so that's the, that's the, 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 it, the attraction of managed riparianism or regulated riparianism is you can get out ahead of problems before they happen and you can build in permit conditions. The thing that one of the things I like best about it is let's assume you know, we, we don't have control, but we know there's gonna be periodic droughts. Um, and therefore, if I had a permit, my permit might and should have conditions that tell me that in a time of drought, when a certain level is reached, the authorities can declare a water emergency. And if there's a water emergency, the terms of my permit change. And therefore I can take less water or have to have to do something differently than I was doing before. Um, for me as the permit holder, it doesn't tell me whether there's gonna be a drought, but it tells me what's gonna happen in the case of drought so that I can, I can hedge, I can plan around that. The other thing that, that the system does that's a little bit like prior appropriation is because you have you know who all the permittees are, um, particularly if you allow short-term uh, short trading. Um, if there is gonna be a drought and I have a high value use and I'm gonna be cut back because my permit tells me I'm gonna be cut back, I can look for people and seek a transfer, people with a lower value use that, that still are going to get some water, I can try and persuade them to transfer their water to me. So there can be water transfer provisions, especially short-term transfer provisions uh, that allow people to hedge around drought. Sure, so we, 
with the regulated repairing is we're we're actually starting to move closer to the prior appropriation uh, doctrine and and is there is there like a convergence? Yeah. Are we seeing a convergence of eastern and western water law at at all? I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Yes, we're definitely seeing a convergence. Um, and and um, in the the paper that you're going to post um, on your website somewhere, um, the this is a paper I wrote for the conference where where we first met. Um, I did a comparison across different parameters of of the degree of convergence in the places where there's not yet convergence between regulated riparianism and prior appropriation. So if you don't mind, I could run through through that so you can see how much convergence there is, and then we can talk about where there is divergence, and that's still substantial. I think that's perfect. Go, go ahead. Yeah, so the, the first item is, um, and this is something I didn't measure mention in the history of riparianism it used to be um in the early days in the east that the riparian uses that you made of the water um had to be made on the riparian tract rather than anywhere and that's that's given way in the east to figuring out you know that that economically it doesn't make sense to limit that because the most valuable place to use the water might not be on the riparian parcel so prior appropriation started with that premise that there would be no no restriction on the situs of use, and regulated riparianism uh, and indeed common law riparianism had had moved in that direction before. So there's no limit on the situs of use. Um, there's no longer a requirement that you own riparian land, but what you would have to do in the east is obtain uh, an easement from or, or um, uh, uh, lease the ability to get access in the east whereas in the west they've created a a right of private condemnation uh for access to to water for for appropriating so that it's a slight difference but basically no no limitation on the situs of use um and in the east you need to be able to uh, obtain access to the water um in the west it, the appropriative rights have moved away from being a purely uh, here's what we do on the ground and that's our system uh, uh, to be regulated. That is, there's now a state engineer's office. They maintain a list of priorities. You 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 can't just go out and appropriate anywhere other than Colorado. Um, and you have to go to the state engineer and have your your new appropriation approved. Same thing on regulated riparianism. You'd have to get a permit um, from the permitting agency in advance. The permits talk about, uh, in regulated riparianism, the place of use, the type of use, the amount of water that you're allowed to use, the season, the return flow that's expected, and the point of the return flow. These are all things that prior appropriation also tracks, so that your these rights are, are tied to a particular use in a particular place. Um, what's different, however, is that in regulated riparianism, the permits are durationally limited. The usual period of a permit is 20 years, and for municipal infrastructure type projects, it's 50 years. Um, they're subject to potential renewal, but you're not guaranteed renewal. Um, whereas with prior appropriation, the rights run in apparent perpetuity. That, that is, once you are the first in the, in the priority system, you're the first forever. 
uh, your, your, your water right is the most senior and therefore the most valuable and it never changes. Whereas with regulated riparianism at the end of 20 years, you have to go back into the queue and request your water again. Um, so in situations where there's not a lot of competition for the water, then renewals are gonna be nearly automatic. But what, what's different now is if the community's water needs, if, if the mix of uses that need to be made of that resource have changed and higher priority uses have come along, such as let's assume you're using it for water for fish, far, for, um, uh, fish farming and uh, the cities need more water, the cities will in the competition, if they're applying for the water when your permit expires and you're applying for the water, um, there's a good chance the city would get the water and, and that would that would limit your fish farming operation. Um, so there's that ability to reallocate the water. It comes back for reallocation on a periodic basis. And again, um, there you can build in as much in each state would have the right to build in as much or as little um, uh, preference for renewals over new entrants. But in fact, I think the idea of having having the water use adjusted to the times makes a great deal of sense. So that's a that's the major difference. Sure. Um, sec the second major difference is that the permits, as I have suggested, are adjustable. Um, that is, they can have conditions built in that say, in the case of a water emergency, you, we could have three levels. We could have a water shortage, we could have a water emergency. And the permits can have conditions that kick in when government or the regulatory agency declares uh, a water shortage, when it declares a water emergency. So if, if you're in the business of washing cars, when the water shortage comes along, you're gonna know you're not gonna have water to wash cars and you, you can furlough your employees or whatever. Um, so there's there's that's that built-in conditions that are in the permits tend to be uh, it gives the agency much more power to implement the plan through the permits, uh, whereas in appropriate appropriation it uh, the cutbacks all come by way of the the priority system. So that's that's different. Um, in both systems, permits can be lost by non-use. Um, in both system, permits can be transferred, but again, in both of them transferring permits would be pretty kludgy uh, because the permits are so tightly linked to the land, which is why I mentioned that that you probably have long-term transfers uh, and short-term transfers so that in case of a true water emergency, you could free up water to move from use to use more quickly. Um, and then the, um, the other thing that's, this is where the West has come to converge with the East. Um, Passive uses, using the water in stream for things like environment, fisheries, kayaking, canoeing, and that sort of thing. Historically in the West, it was very hard to get an appropriate right for that, and the West has become has come around and has begun to implement some minimum flows. They've begun to uh, allow in-stream appropriations, whereas the West has, uh, the East has always uh, allowed uh, in in situ uses uses of the water in place, so that's that's where the west has converged to the east a bit. Okay, so that's interesting. It's not just east moving west; it's also west moving east. Uh, what are your what do you see in terms of further movement on on either side? You know, are, are we going to continue to see this convergence? Um, and wh where do you think it's most likely that that the convergence continues? I think 
I think we're going to see a little more of the West coming to the East. Um, uh, I, I, you mentioned you had Justice Hobbs on, on the program. Um, I think the West is going to want to begin to loosen the grip of, of the appropriators on absolutely all of the rights to the water um, in rivers that are over-appropriated, which many of the rivers in the West already are. Mm -hmm. um, they're beginning to do this at the edges by recognizing minimum flows and things like that. I think there's going to be a little more of an effort to, to um, um, this is a panel that we're working on for this year. I think we're going to begin to see some mandatory conservation for agricultural uses, at least in times of shortage. Um, we're going to begin to see more, you know, just kind of more conditions applied to the water users. Uh, in the prior appropriation system. So I think that's a piece of convergence we're going to see because simply the, the water there is sufficiently scarce and the predicted scenarios for the climate models mean that there's going to be a lot of hand-wringing uh, that eventually, because it, the, the interests are so important, something's going to be done. And I think the something is, is going to uh, wrest some of the water away from the seniors or at least have some kind of rollbacks in their amount of their rights in, in extreme situations. Sure, and and as as this convergence continues, what I want to take advantage of your uh, your legal mind here. What are some of the legal issues, specifically like constitutional issues, that we're going to be facing as that convergence continues? Well, the the obvious one is that the. Uh, rights holders whose rights are, are reduced are going to claim that it's a taking of their private property without compensation. Um, the Constitution, the federal Constitution and most state constitutions have a parallel provision, um, says nor shall private property be taken for public use without just compensation. Um, the trick, of course, is the cost of the compensation if you had to buy out all the seniors in the, in the prior appropriation system is um, probably too large for any of the states to, to bear. On the other hand, the, the nature of the right, um, the water right, it's a usufructory right. It's a right of use, and it doesn't necessarily, the, the doctrine about takings um, Again, this is a show unto itself, but um, <laughs> regulation, the, the, the question is when does regulation become a taking is, is the, the key issue here because if we were to regulate, for example, in time of extreme shortage, proportional cutbacks, um, you're not taking the entire water right. You're, you're taking a piece of it, and typically when, you, when the person is left with a, a, a val valuable residuum, uh, to use the Supreme Court's words, uh, when there's a where there's a residuum uh, value, that then um, that might not be a compensable taking. What the water users, of course, will argue is, I have a right to 100 units. If you only let me use 90, those 10 units were, you know, I have a property right in each one of those 10 units, and that property right was taken completely. Whereas if you look at the parcel as a whole, the entire appropriative right and say, you got 90%, stop complaining. Um, so the, the courts have been pretty consistent, including the U.S. Supreme Court, that, that the baseline is the parcel as a whole for takings of, of, of land. 
And if they apply that logic to takings of, of um, usufructory water rights, the right of use, and you're left with, with a substantial proportion of your use, um, I think that that might be constitutionally permissible. Um, I hesitate to ever predict what the Supreme Court will do with a takings case. <laughs> um, but they... Uh, it, uh, they've been at it for a hundred and something years, and they've never really done a very good job of defining exactly what the rules are. So it's it's hard to hard to predict. Um, but again, especially if the the taking was limited to extreme situations, um, I think th I think that case again becomes an easy case, easier case for the court to find against the landowner. Um, think about the there's some historical cases like the house fire case where you ha you have to burn somebody else's houses down to stop the conflagration from spreading. That's a non-compensation situation. So if if we had to reduce the water rights of some seniors, um, not in, in order to protect uh, all the water users in the system or the entire economy from collapsing for want of water. And you turn off the water in a big city for more than a day and it's a disaster. Right. Um, so I think, I think we're going to begin to see a little bit of, of um, that sort of progression in the West where we begin to require conservation beyond the traditional norms, um, where only something that qualifies as waste is is what's not permitted. So I think we're going to begin to see regulation that brings a little more water back into the prior appropriation system, the thing that I don't see, um, but that is saying what the water that's saved will be – well, let me, let me say that again. I think if that water is – set aside for in-stream use, uh, protecting flows and, and those sorts of things, and perhaps for short-term transfer to the city, that's going to pass muster. But um, if there's a surplus to say that government's going to hand it out again any way it sees fit, I don't think that's going to work. I think at that point, the unsatisfied juniors are going to have the better claim. And uh, I think, I think, the nature of many of the state constitutions in the West, um, Colorado's being case in point, but Arizona, almost all of the mountain, mountain states and several of the others do, um, the const state constitutions provide the right to divert and appropriate shall never be denied. And therefore, I think for a number of the states, short of a constitutional amendment, um, um, the most we'll see is, is some regulation to free up water in shortage. Well, Bo, this is absolutely fascinating. I've, I've uh, learned a tremendous amount from you, and I really appreciate your time. Uh, for those folks who want to find out more about you and your work, where can they go to find that information? Um, the easiest way to contact me is by email, and it's robert.abrams, A-B-R-A-M-S, at FAMU, F. A-M-U, as in Florida A&M University, famu.edu, and um, I'm pretty good about answering email. Terrific. And, um, so and that's probably probably the easiest way to reach me. Cool, and I'll, I will put uh, your paper and uh, the slides from the presentation uh, online on the show notes, so for those folks who kind of want to see uh, Bo's work up close and personal, you can uh, just go to thewatervalues.com and find 
uh, find those those papers. So, uh, again, Bo, thanks so much. Really appreciate your time today. Uh, you've been absolutely fantastic. And, uh, again, thanks so much. Thank you, Dave. All right. That was my conversation with Bo Abrams, professor of law at the Florida A&M University College of Law. Again, he was a great guy, fantastic, and really uh, did a fantastic job of explaining how English common law has morphed into riparianism, which then has morphed into this regulated riparianism and keeps kind of moving closer and closer to kind of prior appropriation. And he also made some interesting observations about how prior appropriation is starting to move closer to riparianism. So he really had this has this uh, very interesting idea of how uh, Eastern and Western water law in the United States is converging. Uh, fascinating stuff, and it's going to be very interesting to see how it all plays out over the coming years. Uh, well, in any event, I indicated earlier that it was a it was a relatively long interview. And I wanted to give you the benefit of hearing everything uh, Professor Abrams had to say. Uh, and so accordingly, I am going to uh, sit back and remind you that we are going to be on hiatus for the next month and a half or so. So, I mean, really, it's probably going to be till late September until you see another uh, episode coming out um, from the Water Values podcast. And also, uh, it'd be so it's a great time to catch up on back episodes of the Water Values podcast. Um and then the other thing, thank you again to those of you who've chosen to donate uh, to the Water Values Podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please just go over to thewatervalues.com, click on the little yellow donate button. Uh, it just takes a few seconds, and it really is appreciated and, and helps defray the cost of providing uh, this the Water Values Podcast to you. So, again, thanks again. And remember, while we're on hiatus, Please remember to keep the core message of the Water Values Podcast in mind as you go about your day. Water is our most valuable resource, so please join me by going out into the world and acting like it. Thank you for tuning into the disclaimer. I'm a lawyer licensed in Colorado and Indiana, and this podcast does not establish an attorney-client relationship with you or anyone else, and information in this podcast should not be considered legal advice. Further, this podcast is not a solicitation for professional employment. I'm just a lawyer who finds water issues interesting and who believes greater public education about water issues is necessary. And that includes enhancing my own education about water issues because no one knows everything about water. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.